You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Turn your Bibles over to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon really talking here about his experimenting with life and um, really searching for um, satisfaction in life, from life, uh, meaningful life, in, in his quest for what we would call maybe, maybe the good life or the best that life could offer. Solomon examines everything from that which would be awe-inspiring to, to that which is even just foolish and even ridiculous. He is looking for purpose in life, meaning of life, fulfillment in life, but listen, independent of God. As we saw in chapter 1, Solomon was blessed with unlimited resources and unlimited power and really as much time as he wanted to exercise those resources and the power that, that he had, the authority that he had. Having the, the means and the authority to do whatever his heart desired. In chapter 2, he's like, I tried many things. I tried one thing after another, and, 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 and I looked at all of this, all of these things I tried with this incredible dose of wisdom that God gave me, and, and, and he just imparts that to us. Now, many see God giving Solomon the wisdom that he had for that very reason, that he could, he could take the best that this world has to offer and with the brightest of minds, look at it, size it up from the most meaningful, most awe-inspiring things to the most insignificant, foolish, ridiculous things. And that mind, what would that mind conclude? What would that mind conclude looking at the best of what the world has to offer, but, but, but receiving that without God in the equation, what would that mind, the most wise mind, conclude? And that's what we have, really, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. But he hones in a bit more on this in chapter 2. So, in chapter 1, we noted that Solomon was, was, was that, you know, that, that man, you know, we, 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 in our human nature, we have this um, thing that we need to learn. <laughs> Solomon had to learn it. We have to learn it. And, and basically, it's, it's something that we can all benefit from. And that's living in the flesh, living in this fallen nature, and, and, and waking up sometimes with this mindset. It's really a deception, but it's part of our mindset and it's the, if I could only have this, then I would be fulfilled in life. In Solomon in chapter 1, he noted that that man is comparatively insignificant and pointless apart from God. In a general observation, as he looked at life, he's like, you know, you really look at just man. He's comparatively insignificant and pointless apart from God. 
We, we come, we go in chapter 1, he says. Then another generation rises up and kind of picks up, up where we left off. And then he, he began to talk in chapter 1 about how he accumulated all this wisdom and, 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 and education and knowledge. But he, he discovered that if we are not able to process our knowledge before God, if we're not able to, to, to process or add God's knowledge into the equation of everything we're observing about life and learning in life, then all that does not, or all that basically does is cause us to look at life and our hearts fill up with grief and sorrow. Why is that? Because we are living in a cursed and fallen world. And, and, and having the greatest of minds, this great ability to just understand things and retain things and, and process things, this great wise mind, a greater understanding of a fallen world to that mind led to just grief because he began to really see the world for what it is. He began to see fallen human condition for what it is. You see how awful everything really is. And if you don't have the greater revelation of God, like God's take to bring into the equation, then it's, it's pointless. And so he, he, he's coming out of that, and he now begins to, to hone in on verse 1 here. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all of the days of their life. Now, the Hebrew mindset, when they, they go, you go through the scriptures and you begin to you read through the Psalms, you, you begin to realize that the Hebrew mindset, it, it concluded that God had indeed made the earth for us to enjoy and, and for us to enjoy the blessings of his creation. In the New Testament, Paul would, in, in 1 Timothy 6.17, he would say, command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty or trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. At the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, Solomon will Again, admonishes readers to enjoy God's blessings and do it while you're young, he would even say, before you know, the old age would arrive and the body begins to fall apart. None of us know about that, but Solomon did. He would say in verse 1 of chapter 12, Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come. Can I hear an amen on that? And the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Interesting. Eight times in Ecclesiastes, Solomon used the, the same Hebrew word here for pleasure. And so it's obvious that he did not consider God as some celestial killjoy who was anti-pleasure for his people. Solomon specifically mentioned wine here in verse 3 and, and laughter here in verse 2 as two sources of, of pleasure that were used in his experiment on life. We know in 1 Kings chapter 10, talking about Solomon's life, that, that he had constructed a massive banqueting hall. 
in 1 Kings chapter 4, it, it talks about all the choice foods that he was able to bring in from around the world, the known world then. In verse 8 here, he talks about entertainers and dancers and singers and what would be musicians and, and even magicians in their day and whatnot and, and comedians and all of that. Now imagine King Solomon with, with all of the wealth we couldn't even imagine if we could see it. But, but with, with all of that wealth and all of those resources, with this massive banquet hall, all of the, the, the choice food, to the, the top shelf of the top shelf, with the best entertainers that man could provide, the best wine, watching all of the most gifted entertainers. And when the party was over, as King Solomon, in his experiment, was examining life, in his heart, he was still dissatisfied and he was still empty. I, I tried, he says here in verse 1 and 2, I tried to find pleasure with, you know, with, with mirth, with, with humor, or, or anything that brought him laughter is what that refers to. But I, I discovered, he says, it, it actually just led to madness. It was all vanity. And he concluded, you know, what, what did it all really accomplish? We noted that he would use the word vanity 38 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, each time basically talking about how things are meaningless, again, in life without God. In this context, he's talking about the futility, the futility of any human effort, the futility of anything that man does or man can produce outside of God. Man's works, not God's works, are vain. They're meaningless. And that's really the theme of Ecclesiastes. So in verse 3 again, he's like, I searched in my heart to gratify my flesh with these things, with, with things that made me laugh, with the best wines. And, and so really, basically, he goes in, from chapter 1 of, of going, okay, I had wisdom, and I had all the ability to be educated. And I looked around at all of creation, and I just, the, you know, knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. And he came up with vanity, vanity, vanity. Now in chapter 2, he switches the focus off of like knowledge and, and being educated and the wisdom and all of that. And he's like, well, now with that mind, I began to look at the world and what the world had to offer me. It's kind of like the college grad now, okay? <laughs> I've learned it all. Now I'm going to go into the world and I'm going to see what the world really has to offer me. But what does he do? He jumps right into the party life. He just gets, gets right into to, to looking for the meaning in life through being a party animal, you might say. But this was just as much of a dead end as pursuing, you know, things through, 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 through knowledge and through education. He looked at what, what, what the, the party scene had to offer, and he goes, man, this is nuts. It leads to madness. It, 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 it just... It's no way to live. Now we know that there, there, there are wise people, even wise people without the Lord can come to this conclusion as they grow older in life. It seems that the, 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 the older people get in life, they're like, okay, the party scene was in my younger days, and that's probably why we don't have 60-year-olds in the mosh pit and 60-year-olds going to the rave parties and that kind of thing. You know, over time, you're over it. 
over time, it's not satisfying like it was. We live in a pleasure-driven world. I don't need to, you know, clarify that case. But it, it is a world that is driven for pleasure apart from God. Would you guys agree with me? Yes. I, 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 it's very clear. There, there's nothing wrong with enjoying life and, and, and having fun. And, you know, the person who builds their life on, you know, Finding pleasure and discovering pleasure and seeking pleasure might be different from a person that is just enjoying the things that God has, has given them. And, and the person, though, that is like, it's all about pleasure, you know, they, they're just, it's all about that. They're going to find themselves very disappointed in the end. And that's the point that, that, that Solomon is making. The problem with pleasure-seeking is that really the heart behind this is very selfish. It's a self a very selfish endeavor for the most part. That's what we see when we see someone's stuff becoming more important than the people in their life. I was talking to a person recently who was making this observation to me, and I thought it was just a really worthy thing of quoting, so I'm quoting it, but they said they had some, some friends over their house, and they had recently added onto their house, and, and they put in these new... Uh, sliding doors, these big, beautiful sliding doors that would go out onto a balcony, and, and the, the, there were some younger kids around the house, and the, 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 the toddlers kept running up to the new glass and putting their hands all over the glass. Now, we did that when we were toddlers, right? Amen. We're not toddlers anymore. But he, he just said, you know, one of, one of the relatives was really upset about that, and it wasn't even their glass. It wasn't even their house. They were just like, man, knock that out, and they're just really getting on the toddlers. And he goes in and hit me. And I said it in front of all these people. And I just thought it was so profound. He said, you know, listen, that's art. I just got everyone's attention. He goes, that's art. Those little ones will only be that size so long. And we should just leave those handprints there. And that's the perspective. That's a good perspective. You know, the, the, the person is seeking pleasure. They're very much about them and what they want to please them. When people live for pleasure, they end up with, with broken relationships. They end up with, with empty hearts. People are more important than things and thrills. We are, by the way, to be channels with what God has entrusted to us, not reservoirs. The greatest joy comes when we share whatever God has given with us with others. When people are living for pleasure, they are pushing and pursuing things that they have. Really, if you look at them, everything has a shelf life that they're pursuing. The thrill, the enjoyment only lasts so long. That's why there's a, a reoccurring drive for the next thing. That thing goes on and on uh, until they reach a point where the returns are, are so diminished that there's no enjoyment at all. That's why people don't stop with their one cup of wine over a nice dinner. Over, over time, it's more wine. Over time, it's finer wine because they're, they're looking to find pleasure in that. And that's true with the person trying to find 
pleasure in material things or in monetary things, in a career or promotion, or even in sensual things. The sad result is this, and don't remiss this. The sad result is desire without satisfaction. When pleasure alone is the center of life, the result will ultimately be disappointment and emptiness. And again, some scholars talk about the emptiness of Solomon here, and they say that what, what he tried to find through partying and, and, and pleasure and stuff, they're like, well, it's just not there. He's trying to find something that's just not there. And I've read a few guys that have commented on this, and I, I found it fascinating how far they'll go with this, but um, you know, one of the thoughts that I, that I was reading was that you know, human beings are, are made in the image of their creator, and they are wired to be creative, to find meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction through working and, and accomplishing things you know, by being constructive with our life. Then we begin to enjoy that inner fulfillment that is really more deep and meaningful than anyone will ever fill at a party or in the moment of driving a new car off of a lot. We have been made in the image of our Creator. We have been, really. In our DNA, there's this design to be creative. In the sense of accomplishment, of having been you know, part of creating something, something good, doing something good, establishing you know, something good for others. That's just part of who we are. Sometimes we forget that that God put Adam, created Adam, and put Adam in the garden to tend to that garden before the fall. The, the whole idea was, you know, we oftentimes go to chapter 3 and say, well, now after the curse, he's going to work in the sweat of his brow. But before the curse, in, in the man that was made in the image of God, there was this, this creative, you know, part of who he was. This to be responsible and, and that he would find fulfillment in that. He would find gratification in what? in what God had purposed him to be. And ultimate fulfillment is found in us living out God's purpose for our lives. You know, living out what he has called us to be in our job, in our marriage, in our parenting, and in our ministry. True fulfillment is living for the Lord and fulfilling his calling upon our lives. How many, how many of you guys know that, that living his purpose out is never boring, <laughs> right? It's only satisfying. It was Asaph who would say in Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. What is he saying? Let's, let's break that down in modern day vernacular. He's saying, you know, when I look at the world and everything that the world has to offer me, I would rather spend one day ushering at Calvary Chapel La Habra, then three and a half years of days experiencing what this world has to offer. That, that's an interesting thing. But we have this opportunity every day. We have this opportunity throughout our life. In verse 4, Solomon begins to talk about how he's experimenting with life again. He's trying to find meaning in life. 
by now amassing wealth and, and stuff and all of his works and all of his projects here. So check out what this guy does. In verse 4, I, I made my works great. I built myself houses and I planted myself vineyards. Before we go through this list, think of a guy who would never exhaust his bank account. Think of a guy that, okay, he had unlimited resources, not just funds, not just, you know, uh, the monetary ability to build and do whatever he wanted, but he had the workforce. He had, he had more assistance and more help than we, 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 all of us here would ever have in a in hundred lifetimes. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees in the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yeah, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of the kings and of provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kind. So I became great. I excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. So when Solomon would venture out on any kind of project with all of the means that you would ever need, with each of those projects, he was hoping to discover something that would bring him lasting fulfillment and meaning. And his projects were countless. In verses 4 through 6, he, he started with great works, including houses and, listen, cities, gardens, vineyards, orchards, and, and, and forest. Then he worked with the engineering of, of getting water resources to all of, or, or water to all of those resources, all of those vineyards and all of those orchards. He, he in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 5, we, we read about Solomon and he's, he's even busy supervising the construction of the temple. Listen, one of the greatest buildings ever built in the ancient world. Sometimes we, we read about that and we're like, well, that'll keep you busy. But at the same time, he was building cities and houses and vineyards. And he, and he, was, he was managing all of this. Listen, in a way, he had, he had such great wisdom that he... We talked about this in our introduction that, that he was able to, to put together a structure, a governmental structure to manage all of this. He had a, he had a, 
uh, a structure for the palace alone to manage the military part of that, to manage the culinary part of that, to manage the maintenance of that. He had these, these men that would report to him that were over countless numbers of men just for his palace. He had the same thing going on for cities that were being built and the, the, the agriculture that he was planting. All of this was going on, and as he looks at it, he's like, you know, all through this, through every project I had my eye on or my hand in, I was doing it in an attempt to find meaning and fulfillment. Very interesting. Verse 7, he not only had great works, but he had all the great workers. He had two kinds of slaves, those that he would purchase, those that were born in his household. In 1 Kings chapter 5, it talks about at one time he drafted 30,000 Jewish men to help accomplish a couple of projects that he was working on. Verses 7 and 8, he accumulates you know, great wealth in flocks and in, in herds, in, in, in gold and silver. He's the wealthiest and the wisest man in the world. No one had ever been close before him or after him. And then this whole thing in verse 10 of you know, whatever he laid his, his eyes on, he can just have that. If he thought that it would bring him pleasure, he built it or bought it. I remember flipping around on the, some documentary one time. At, I don't know what drew my eye, but I went to it, and it was a, there's a team that was following around these really, you know, popular celebrities of our day. And I think one was Michael Jackson and one was another guy. And they were, they were just showing them. And one of them was like when they'd go to a new area and, and they would, you know, like set up a home in that area. It showed them shopping and they were just walking through. And as fast as they could walk through and point, there were all these servants behind them kind of grabbing the stuff and like buying it as they would walk through these, you know, really expensive markets, all this fine art and everything, and just spending, I think the shop owner would then, they'd say, oh, well, he just dropped $4 million in our shop in four minutes, and he was on to the next shop. Solomon did this all day long. And it's interesting because he was unhappy. The guy had more wealth, more power, more influence, more knowledge than any of us can even imagine. And again, we've got to remember that God gave all of them, all of this to him, all this stuff, the wisdom and all of this, so that he would come to the conclusion that, look it, this doesn't add up. This doesn't bring fulfillment. So we could read it. God's kids like us can read this and, and, and not have to live under the deception of if I could only have this or that from the world, minus God, I will be fulfilled. That's the way it is with the material things. They will never, ever satisfy us like we think they will satisfy us when we're eyeing them up and sizing them up and, 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 and buying them up. I remember, you guys know I like the mountain bike, and, and um, I usually start working Lori on a new mountain bike about two years before I buy the mountain bike. So we talk about this, and, and, and I start convincing her why I need the new mountain bike. My last bike that I got, I think it was about four years ago, 
And I remember, I just kept eyeballing this bike, and if I could just get this bike, well, you got to sell your old bike. And it's, I, I followed all the, and I, I bought the new mountain bike. And I remember my first ride. I went out on this thing, and it was, it was just, it was a blast. But I remember riding, and I, go, I just thought, man, I, I just need a little wider handlebars, just a little bit wider handlebars. So I went to the shop, and I was talking to the guy. That was, yeah, I've got these bars. I'll, I, I, if I could just have those handlebars, now that new bike will really be happening. So I get the new handlebars. I go out and ride those new handlebars on the new bike, and I'm like, ah, these old grips don't feel good on the old you know, handlebars, the new handlebars. So I went back, and I'm like, you guys, get, yeah, I get to give me some new grips for the new handlebars on my new bike. You girls are following me on this, aren't you? You know exactly what I'm saying. And that led to like, well, I got I to gotta get new rims now. And the new rims needed these certain tires. And next thing you know, it was like, no matter what I put on that bike, it just fed this, I need more for that bike. Anybody ever been there? Yeah. Today, sometime we have been there. I know, we've been there. There can be joy in doing projects. Solomon found delight in all of his labor here, it says, verse 10. That's part of how we're wired. But afterward, in verse 11, when he considered all of his works. So, okay, I did all of this. He might have enjoyed that because we're kind of wired to do this. But then when he got to the end, if I could just have that house done, that city done, that vineyard planted. When it was planted and, and those cities were built, it was like, I just see vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. The journey brought him pleasure. We're wired for that. But the destination brought him pain. As one old aged preacher said, success is full of promise until men get it. Vanity and grasping for the wind. There's no profit under the sun. You know, think of that phrase. Vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Imagine how this would affect our life if we really believed this and really applied this on a regular basis. Imagine what Christianity would be today if it was made up of people who truly believed satisfaction is not found in a new this or a bigger that. Imagine what our church would be like if everyone that attended this place was free from pursuing the next thing. Everyone was resting in and fulfilling God's purpose for their life and they stopped pursuing pleasure and stuff. Imagine what our church would be like. Imagine what the, the church globally would be like. There's no way we'd fit in this property. Imagine what the church would be if we all saw materialism and entertainment as idolatry. Imagine what the church would be if we all took the time we invest to attain all the stuff and we took that same time and invested it in the kingdom. Imagine what the church would be. Think of the hours that would be freed up. All the hours that we have to work to amass all this stuff. Think of the people that would be freed up. Think of the resources that would be freed up. Think of the satisfaction people would begin to experience and then how that would play into the body life of the church. The fulfillment of being together. We learn in chapter 1 that a spiritual thirst and a spiritual 
Hunger can never be satisfied by a physical thing. That's what Jesus was teaching at the, the well, with the woman of the well in John chapter 4, where you know, he says, whoever you know, drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. That water that I give, man, it's not only going to fulfill them, but it's going to become a fountain of, of water springing up into everlasting life. And the, the woman, she got it right. She's like, sir, give me this water. Give me this which satisfies my soul so that I will not thirst for the things of the world. In Luke 12, Jesus said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. I want to read that again. Take heed and just beware of covetousness. I got to have that. Jesus says, For life does not consist in the abundance of what you got. Do you know that America's consumer-driven economy would totally collapse if Americans believe this? The, the, the joy, the joy we can take out of material things, listen, this is important. It is a joy that comes when we realize God has blessed us with those things and they're not our things. They're gifts from God. It's a joy that comes from knowing we don't deserve them. It's a joy that comes when we see all that we have as, as gifts of God and we just like we hold on lightly to them as, as stewards of, of God's gifts. It's a joy that comes when we use those things that God has blessed us with to bless others. It's a priceless feeling when we know that what we have is from God. When you're in that mindset, don't you pray over your food a little bit differently? When you're in that mindset? I mean, there's the like, I'm really hungry, let's pray, and I'm, i got to eat prayer. And then there's that time sometimes you're like, man, we are just... Thank you, Lord. And you know, eating with that mindset, track with me. A person that brings, that does not bring God into the equation of their life. Think about this. Think about, think about the most successful, wealthy atheist sitting in, in their palace with all the food that they've provided. And they have no one to thank because they think it's them. I read a quote, I, I brought it to my notes. It says, the worst feeling for an atheist is when they finally feel thankful, but there's no one there to thank. Eating a double-double in the parking lot of an In-N-Out burger with a grateful heart, knowing you don't deserve it, and it's God-given, is more rewarding than being a king sitting in a palace with the finest delicacies. You understand that? I know you do. Christians just will not enjoy material things unless we enjoy them as God intended. We don't simply enjoy the blessings from God. 
we enjoy the blessings of God with him. It was Daniel 4 and 5 where Belshazzar, you guys remember that account, took over the kingdom of Babylon, the death of his father Nebuchadnezzar, and, and he, just, he just puffed out his chest and was like, you know, like I've amassed all of this. He took credit for all of this, and, and he, he orders this big old feast, and, and, and he, he says, oh, I want all the princes around the kingdom and all the lords to come to this feast. And, you know, we, we have in our world, you know, we have self-made men who, who think that they've made their life what it is and they refuse to give God credit. Well, he was like a self-made king who refused to give God credit. And as they were getting this whole banquet together, and it was a very dark banquet, a sensual, perverted banquet. He, he orders to have all of the gold and the silver vessels that his grandfather had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem in the Babylonian captivity era. And he's like, I want you to bring all of those sacred vessels. And I want you to bring them to this, this, this banquet. And I want you to fill them with wine so we can, we can drink in this drunken orgy of a festival that we have. And as that was going on, in the self-made man's party, there was just a, a finger that would write on the wall. Meeny, meeny, tackle you, sar- you farson. And it was like, what is that? They just were like, what in the world was that? And they call for this guy, Daniel, who at one time was able to interpret dreams and visions and things like this. And so they, they, they call for this guy, Daniel. Daniel, of course, who's always been spot on, is brought. And Daniel interpreted it. But he started by reminding Belshazzar of how his dad rebelled against God and God allowed him a period of time in which he was insane in order that he might know that God is God and he is not. He says, but, his, but you, his son, Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this, and you lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and they brought all these vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which you don't even see. They don't even exist or hear or know. And he says this, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you've not glorified. Sad. Belshazzar would glorify his kingdom, himself, his stuff, but not his creator. And that very night, he would be slain. Oh, the emptiness, oh, the tragedy of the self-made person who tries to rule God out of the equation. Live his life as if all of what they have, God has no doing in that. The self-made person who has it all usually finds themselves the loneliest of all because, (laughs) if you think about it, like Solomon, how many friends could he really have? (laughs) You know, really think about it. Everybody just wants to be around him for his stuff. In in America today, you know, as we see people maybe rising to the top and and, and gaining success to where they can go and have it all and do it all, you know, they're, they're lonely because 
There's not a lot of people that can keep up with that, but also in America, everyone else is trying to do their, that, that very same thing themselves. People are trying to fill their time building their, their own kingdoms. Verse 12, Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do who succeeds the king? Only what he's already done. And then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man, his eyes are on his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to all of them. So I said in my heart, verse 15, as it happens to a fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Hmm. And I said to my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than the fool forever, since all that now is will, will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does, wise man, how does a wise man die? As the fool. Therefore, at this downer point, as he's experimenting on life and observing life and what the world is without God, therefore I, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. That I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I, I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will even be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over my, my labor in which I toiled and in which I have sown, uh, shown myself wise, uh, understand, uh, wise under the sun. That also is vanity. And therefore I turned to my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it all. This also is vanity and great evil. For what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all the days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. So he starts off here in verse 12, and I like this phrase, I, I turn myself to behold. That's a way of saying, I, I just began to consider things from a different viewpoint. And what was that other viewpoint really? Well, in verses 12 through 7, 17, excuse me, he, he looked at all the wisdom, and then he looks at all the wealth in verses 18 through 23, but he does it all in, in light of the certainty of death. <laughs> I'm doing all of this, I'm amassing all of this, but, but, but I'm realizing, and I'm looking at this in the light of one day, I, I am going to die. What good is it to, to be wise and wealthy if you're going to die and just leave everything else behind? That was a good observation that he made. Solomon will bring up the certainty of death ten times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So he really did take a, a, a hard look at life, every part of life under the sun, from birth to death is the idea. And he obviously knew that death was an obvious fact of life. So he considers his wisdom. Since both the wise man and the fool will die, he's like, well, what value is it then to have wisdom? You know, I was able to gain all of this stuff because of my wisdom. I was able to build all of this stuff because of my wisdom. But I'm going to die and no longer have this stuff. I'm just going to leave it to men. Men behind me. For you and I, we can, we can, on a side note, we can look at the wisdom that we have, right? And, and we can impart that to the next generation, right? That's a good thing. That's a good use of wisdom, by the way. 
What I'm doing right now in this room is a good use of time. Amen? It's a good use of time. But in verse 12, what, what can man do that succeeds the king? And this suggests that it is folly for, you know, successive generations to make the same mistakes. We've got to learn. And so, in verse 13, he's like, in spite of the fact that all men must die, wisdom is still greater than folly, as light excels darkness. And basically what he's saying is, wisdom is better because the wise man sees that death is coming and he lives his life accordingly. With the fool, he walks in darkness and, and he lives unprepared. Different life. And then, verse 16, he, he, Solomon sees that both the wise and the fool die. Um, they, they, the, both the wise men and the fool are forgotten. You know, we, we, we see that. We think about you know, famous people that have died in my younger years, your younger years, and we, we rarely remember them. We rarely talk about them in our conversation. So, anyway, he, he comes down and he concludes. And I, and it, I, it's just, therefore, I just, man, I'm hating life. I just hate life. Life seemed irrational to him at that point. It seemed futile to him at that point. Looking at all of his work, looking at all of his projects, all of what he's accomplished, all the material things, all the knowledge. He's just like disgusted with life. But with that wise mind, that's the right conclusion to come to if life has been lived with God out of the equation. <clears throat> and that's the point. No healthy Christian I'm not talking physically healthy. Spiritually healthy Christian is going to hate life. Why? Because a spiritually healthy Christian brings God into the equation. 1 Peter 3.10, we, we talked about there how we love life and see good days. We love life. We, we, we seek to put the most into life. We seek to get the most out of life and give glory for all of what we put, glory to God for all we put into life and, and take out of life. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And we know as well that we're just passing through and this is not our home. Amen? So he considers his wealth in the latter part of that section, 18 through 23. Not only did he hate life, he just hated the wealth that was the result of all of the toil. He hated it because in verse 18, you just, you can't keep it, it's going to go to your successor. You know, it's that, that parable that Jesus spoke to the rich fool, you know, and he, he's like, he was saying within himself, you know, what shall I do? I, I've got so many crops. I, my biggest problem in life is I, I got to build more barns for all my stuff. And so he said to his soul, I have many goods laid up for many years. And he goes, I just need to take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But Jesus, like God said to him, fool, he called him a fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose things will these be? Interesting. We are to be good stewards of money, of whatever God has entrusted to us. God is the provider. God is the owner. And we have the privilege of, of using it, enjoying it for his, his glory. One day we will give an account. Secondly, we can't protect it in verses 19 and 20. Solomon's like, it's bad enough that we must leave it you know, behind, but even worse, we might leave it 
to someone that might waste it. We can't protect that. There's no guarantee of that. You can write the best living trust and will and whatnot, but once the successor gets their hands on it, they're going to do what they, 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 they do with it. Thirdly, we can't enjoy it as we should in 21 through 23. If, we all, you know, if, 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 if all we do is think about our wealth and worry about it, you know, what's going to happen to it, we're going to just make ourselves miserable. And it's just going to seem futile. And, and Solomon experienced that as, as well. So what does a man get for all the toil and anxiety of striving with which he labors under the sun? In verse 22, you know, at this point, man, it just seems like a downer. He seems like a pessimistic, but he doesn't remain that way very long. In verse 24, notice with me, nothing is better for a man than that he should eat, drink, and, and, and that his soul should enjoy uh, good in, in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Now, there are um, there's six conclusions in the book of Ecclesiastes. We talked about um, Solomon, the way he writes this out. He ponders things and just ponders them out loud. Ponders, ponders, ponders. And all of a sudden, he just winds it down and he draws a conclusion. Here's the first of those six conclusions. So, each of these conclusions, by the way, emphasize the importance of accepting life as God's gift and enjoying it in his will. So he's not in verse 24, by the way, advocating, you know, just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, that's a, that's a philosophy of a fatalistic, a fatalism, not faith. What he's saying is thank God for what you do have and enjoy it to the glory of God. Paul gave that approval or gave his approval to the same attitude when he exhorted us to trust in the living God who gives richly all things to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. So 25. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment more than I? More than I. A man who in verse 26 understands that it's God who gave the wisdom and the knowledge and the joy to a man who was good in his sight. Understand that. God wants to bless us. He does. He, he, he wants to bless us. He wants us to enjoy this world and things in this world. But that with the understanding that this is his world that he has created and everything that comes our way is a blessing from him. It's a gift from God for us to, to, to understand that and for us to give him credit for that. Give him glory. And that's not the case with a sinner. The sinner you know, may heap up all kinds of riches, but he, he never really enjoys them because God is left out of the equation. And Solomon's like, even his riches might, for the sinner, might finally just end up going to the righteous. It's not always the case, but we do see from time to time that that being the case, we know that when the 
the nation of Israel left Egypt. You remember, it was like, man, those Egyptians were like, just get out of here. Take all of our gold. Take all of our, just leave. You know, sometimes that's just the way God's work, God works. Then we take all that stuff and build a golden calf with it. It's just the way it kind of works. <laughs> but he concludes, it is vanity, like a vexation of spirit. It's meaningless, a chasing after the wind for the sinner, for anybody to heap up riches and ignore God. I just got a book from, I don't know the person that mailed it to me. I get some books and just, they're good. But um, they mailed me this book and they just they, I said, you know, we're sending these out to all these pastors in the States. And we'd like you to, to read it. And so I, I just read the foreword. I read a little bit of it. But it, it's, it's a book that's, that's talking about the idolatry of money. The idolatry of money. And how the church today is not seeing money um, for what it is. Um, Solomon, uh, as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, I think we're going to, all these studies are going to be very similar in the sense of like, yeah, we've got to agree with this. But we're also living in a world and a part of the world that is pushing against this. You understand that too, right? And, and so I think it's important that as we go through these studies, we just open up our hearts and we ask the Lord to show us the idols maybe that need to be torn down in our own hearts and our own lives, right? And, and, and I think it's important, too, to kind of look at life and, and our own life, the path that we're on, whatever that might be, and just be honest with ourselves and before God. And, you know, is this what God desires for me right now? Am I pursuing a career? Am I pursuing um, advancement in that career? Am I pursuing the next, you know, opportunity because God has put that in my heart, because God has opened that door. Again, we need to look at everything as like, is this from God? Is this from God? Because we do live in a, a day where self-made men and self-made women can be self-made men and self-made women. We live in an area. We live in a time. We're living in an economy right now where, where we can just, we can fall into the trap that Solomon's warning us not to fall into. This guy with this very gift that, that we don't have, a mind and, and wisdom that goes far beyond any of us. And he's looking at life and he's like, do not fall into the trap that more is better or I need the next this or the next that. Don't fall into that trap, especially if you're looking at it for fulfillment. If God opens a door, you're pursuing the Lord and he opens that door and he begins to bless you like he blessed Abraham, or bless David, or bless Solomon, whatever that might be, and then embrace that as, as God's doing, and embrace that as God's gifting and blessing your life, and live your life, whatever that might be, and it, you don't have to have Solomon-like wealth to learn this lesson. You don't have to have Solomon-like wealth to, to, to fall into the trap. Whatever that might be, just Make sure that that thing or those things do not win over your heart. Make sure that Jesus Christ is on the throne of your heart. And you'll begin to see those things and treat those things very differently from people who do not let Jesus be on the throne of their heart. So, Father, again, thank you for your word and these very direct chapters from Solomon. As we went through Proverbs, we were like direct hit after direct hit after direct hit. 
Man, what, a, what an amazing life to study. What uh, amazing insights to learn from one man. Thank you for each direct hit now from Ecclesiastes. We love you. We thank you for the abundant blessings that we do have in our life. May we live out our faith and may we live out our walk in such a way where you would say, man, that's my kid. And, um, and they are good stewards, grateful stewards with what I've entrusted to them. That you'd see us giving you glory by the way we see things, the way we treat things, and the way we bless others with things. May, may all of that bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.